Thank you, Dave. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you here again. Um, it's funny you ask, you know, what's the, what's the title, what's the leadership title that we hold in our organizations? I, uh, our organization, Youth Worker Community, was hired uh, by Green Bay Bible Camp. My wife is the executive director of Green Bay Bible Camp. So there's some issues there that we're dealing with, by the way. And just quick update, we're still married. How good is that? We worked together all summer, still married. That's a win. We're excited about that. I labeled her as the master blaster and owner of the, owner of the power punch. And, uh, and so far, it carries a little bit of strength with her. It hasn't got onto her door. It's a little bit of a long label, but the students like it. I'm not going to lie, the students like it. Um, this past summer, um, my, my job at Green Bay Bible Camp in Kelowna is to um, oversee the leadership development and discipleship of staff. And it is an incredible privilege to be in that space. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, when, I, when, we, when I took the role, um, I didn't know if I could do it. Those are some long days at camp. How many of you who uh, remember growing up working at camp and just thinking, oh my word, how cool would it be to get sleep? Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> sleep would be so awesome. Um, I found moments of sleep, by the way. At camp, you know, we started at about 7 a.m. most mornings. I would start doing a leadership lab with our um, leadership program early in the morning at about 7 a.m. And then we would shut down by about 10.30 p.m. after we'd finished um, our last fireside. And our speaker, of course, would be speaking at the last fireside. I just need you to know if some of you nod off this morning while I'm speaking, I understand. I feel that because there was more than one evening session when I may have nodded off just a little bit after we finished trying to make it through that day. So I understand that very much. You know, at camp, um, we started making a little bit of a shift over the last couple of years in terms of how we understood, you know, what we were really about. Uh, I've, my wife and I, before we ended up in Kelowna, you know, part of my contract in the church that I worked in in Lethbridge, where we were there for 11 years overseeing the student ministry, is each summer we would travel and speak at camps all summer. So we got to know lots of different camps across the country. And, and it was really what prepared Jen, I think, for her role in leading the camp where we're at right now. But one of the shifts that we started to make at camp was we realized the potential of the leadership development of young people and the faith formation of young people at camp. How powerful camp is in the faith formation and development of leadership when it comes to that next generation at camp. And not primarily in terms of the camper, but primarily in terms of the staff, actually. And in fact, as we started working with more and more executive directors at camps over the last while, we've been actually asking them to rethink a lot in terms of what do they look for for primary outcomes when it comes to camp? Are they thinking mostly about camper experience, which is very good. Trust me, really, really important. Uh, when you think about camp and the effect it has on our country in terms of the kind of spiritual climate of our country, it's incredibly significant. In July and August, every single day, literally thousands and thousands of children hear and experience the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a powerful shaping force in our country, absolutely. But what we started to suggest is, what if we started thinking about outcomes first and foremost in terms of the discipleship and leadership development of staff and how God wants to shape them as they work at camp, what if that became our primary focus? What difference could that make in terms of their role as followers of Jesus even when they leave camp and whatever environment they're working in? And then also at the same time, how might that change how they view their work as worship in camp and the effect that might have on the kids that they're actually serving? 
And this became like a real primary focus for us at camp. And it started changing the way we started like evaluating and looking at what we were doing with our staff. Um, at Green Bay, we kind of have four levels of leadership when it comes to our staff uh, in that camping environment. We have our highest level of leadership, which we call our lead team, and those are mostly uh, young adults, adults who are in college, and they have, um, you know, they're working heavy in terms of leading teams from that position, and they oversee many of the roles in our camp. and And part of our job at that lead level, and, and then at the second level, which we call our program level, is giving them organizational leadership skills. How can they go about leading teams? How, they, how do they go about clarifying expectations, engaging and equipping, and communicating clearly with their teams? And so there's lots of development that happens there. And then in our next level down, we have like our uh, mentorship level, which are grade 11 and 12 students. And those students are actually executing program as cabin leaders or activity directors or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, when it comes directly to our campers. And so they're busy working in that space. And we think a lot about helping them think about what it's like to be a servant leader and how they go about engaging in that way of living that Jesus has called them to. And then we have our first level of leadership, which is called our discipleship training program, which is our grade nine and tens. And it was really interesting because we had a lot of conversations even about the title of these students, because most of their day was actually doing manual labor. I mean, they were the ones that were washing the dishes. They were the ones that were cleaning the bathrooms. They were the ones that were making sure the yard was kept clean and welcoming so that we could be good hosts to our guests and campers who were coming with us. And I remember when we were like really trying to figure out, hey, it, it, does our title actually fit the experience that we're trying to give to this staff? Is it actually about discipleship training or is it more just about work? Because it seems like they do just a lot of work. And I remember my wife would come to me and she would say, you know, Sid, we need to think differently about how we do discipleship. And she was right, that we actually need to do discipleship while we work. Like there's ways for us to disciple our staff while we work. But as I started diving into the scriptures and as Jen and I began to talk and work through things even more, we realized that actually there was an even deeper place that we needed to go if we were going to think truly well, if we were going to the think theologically about work, that we don't just do discipleship while we work, but actually our work is discipleship. And our work is actually an expression of discipleship. That when we actually read the scriptures, we begin to understand that actually work is supposed to be worship. We don't actually separate those two realities. That when we look in the scriptures, we realize that, that God is God over all things. There's not this divide between what we would consider secular or sacred or like work of like discipleship and then just manual labor. That actually God is over all of it and that our work is supposed to be our worship. And the roots of this idea is found right in Genesis. If you take a look in Genesis chapter 1, we see from the very beginning that we're given this real foundation of what it means to see our work as worship. Listen to what it says in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 24. God's been creating the world. He's working through his creation order, and he says this. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. 
And God saw that it was good. Here's our God. He's working. He's creating. He's making. And he looks at this creation and he looks at his work and he says, it's good. You guys, here's something that we actually need to understand. That as people made in the image of God, we are actually made to work. That when we work, we are being Like God, we are actually being more who God has designed us to be. We are more clearly reflecting his image as we work because God works. And not only does he work, he delights in his work. He sees his work as something good. And it's not just what he produces, but it's the producing itself that's good. And I think the first thing we need to understand is that as human beings, the flourishing way is actually to work. You know, that's really opposite of what we think. Isn't it true? I turned 50 this year. So uh, I'm five years away from 55, which for so long I've heard is that at 55 comes freedom. And then I'm like, okay, well, what's this freedom that I get at 55? Well, if I look at the commercials really well, it's the freedom of not having to work. That's the freedom. But if we really understand what it means to be made in the image of God, freedom is not found in not working. Freedom is found in seeing our work as worship. That's actually where the freedom is. That it's actually in work that we have the opportunity to be more human, to embrace more clearly the image that God has called us to be, made in his image. Why? Because we have a God who works and a God who delights in his work. Second, we understand that God's work is not just creation, but it's care. You look in Genesis chapter 2, 7 to 9, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here we have a God who is creating, but he's not just creating. He's also caring. He's caring for his creation in what he's creating. He made plants and trees because they look good. They were beautiful. They were a reflection of his creation, his ability to create. And not only were they something beautiful, but they were good. They were good for food, good for sustenance, good for pleasure. He doesn't just create, but he cares. Hey, every time you're involved in your work and you're creating something beautiful that fits the order and design of God's good work that reflects his working and every time you work and do something that brings care to someone else that's for the good of someone else you are doing holy work you are worshiping because you are reflecting the work of the father what you do matters that space that you're in that God has placed you in when you do it in such a way that, re- that results in the good for others, your work is worship. It is a reflection of the creator and it's so good. Not only does God simply work and delight in his work, not only does he, he work to create and also to care, but God then commissions us to carry on his work. This is his calling to us. And in Genesis 1 verse 28, he says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
Understand that when God commissions people to work, this is before the fall. This in a place of perfection. This is in a space of flourishing. That the flourishing life that God gives to Adam and Eve and to humanity is this life of working, of subduing, of having dominion over it. Now, it's interesting when we think of subdue, we think about something that's violent, that's fighting to try to keep something from, from being like disordered and, and causing, causing destruction to actually creating some type of order and some type of control. And so since this is pre-fall, we realize that, that sin has not created like a, a creation that is groaning in the midst of longing for something more, but it is speaking of a need to assert will, of a need to kind of to bring something into more order, to subdue, to fill, to focus. Pre-fall, there is a harmony between creation and humanity, absolutely. There's no need for a, a violent subduing to take place, but there is still a need for stewardship. There's a trusteeship that's been given to actually bring the best out of what is in front of us and where we've been placed. And God has this calling on humanity that there needs to be an assertion of will, an engagement, a working, a creating, a caring to take what he has given and bring something even more beautiful out of it. We are called to work even before the fall. We are called to do his work, to create, to care. This is the calling that God has given to us. For us, when we work with a desire to create, a desire to care, when we understand that our work is worship and it's beautiful and it's right and we are called into this. A number of years ago, um, Barna put out a book called Faith for Exiles. And what they were doing is they were taking a look at the next generation coming up and they were starting to ask the question, hey, what do we need to do when it comes to discipleship of the next generation to help them have a resilient, strong faith, especially as they were growing up in a culture that seemed to have values that were more and more opposed to the values of, of being a follower of Jesus Christ. What was going to be necessary for us to disciple this next generation to be vibrant followers of Jesus Christ? In fact, here's what they said. They said that they propose that the goal of discipleship today is to develop Jesus followers who are resiliently faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the spirit. And as they took a look at all the research that Barna had done over the last 10 years when it came to faith formation of the next generation, they came up with five practices that were going to be necessary if the next generation was going to have a resilient, strong faith in a culture that seemed to be more and more antagonistic towards what it means to follow Jesus. And here was their practices. Practice number one, to form a resilient identity, they need to experience intimacy with Jesus. So we need to create space where this next generation can actually say they've experienced Jesus and they grow in intimacy with him. Practice number two, in a complex and anxious age, we need to develop the muscles of cultural discernment. The ability to be able to look at culture, the practices and the values, acknowledge and affirm what is in line with Jesus' way, stand against and look to change and challenge what doesn't align with Jesus' way. Practice number three, when isolation and mistrust are the norms, forge meaningful intergenerational relationships. The need to be an intergenerational community that's flourishing for all was so incredibly important. Number, number four, curb entitlement and self-centered tendencies by engaging in counter-cultural mission. Live a life on mission, looking to serve and meet the needs of others. But their fifth practice was probably the one that was interesting to me. The fifth practice they said that was going to be necessary 
if we were going to be able to pass on a resilient faith to the next generation was this, to ground and motivate an ambitious generation and train them for vocational discipleship. And here's how they define vocational discipleship. Vocational discipleship means knowing and living God's calling, understanding what we are made to do, especially in the arena of work, and right-sizing our ambitions to God's purposes. It was this idea of having students understand that their work, their vocation was an act of worship before the Father. That it was an extension of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It wasn't something that they did so then on the weekend they could go do their Christian things, but rather this was a part of the expression of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And here's what they found about resilient disciples. Disciples that were resilient, young people that were resilient in faith when it came to work, here's what they found about them. They said this, resilient disciples are God-centered in their thinking about work and calling. Jesus is central when they think about their calling and work. And they didn't see calling simply as sacred vocations, but as any vocation. That God was sovereignly calling them into whatever vocation it was that they were looking to engage in. Resilient disciples believe that integrity in the workplace matters, that there is a right way of doing things and living within all spaces, especially the workplace. Resilient disciples say that their churches help them live out their faith in their workplace, that their church is serious about thinking about what it looks like to see work as worship. And the sacred-secular divide does not factor much into the thinking of resilient disciples. Instead, they understand that all of creation belongs to the king. And all of creation needs to be restored and redeemed by the king. And then finally, they found that resilient disciples are more satisfied in their careers than those who are not. Because their significance and purpose, their faith, their worldview has helped them understand the significance and purpose of their faith. There's something powerful that happens when we begin to understand that our work is part of our worship. That discipleship and work are not two different entities, but working is what it means to be a follower of Christ. And because as human beings, we've been made in the image of God, that when we work, we are actually more like God. This is part of who we are to be. Now, the other thing that Genesis tells us is that while working is something we should delight in, we also understand that on this side of the garden, because of sin, because of the brokenness of creation, and because of the sin of humanity, that the results of work don't come easy. That instead of just delighting in work, work has also become hard and frustrating and difficult. In Genesis chapter 3, 17 to 19, The Lord comes to Adam and Eve after they have sinned and things have radically changed. There's no longer just flourishing. Now there's languishing and there's brokenness and the mandate to work hasn't changed, but how we work and what happens when we work has. And here's what God says in verse 17. He says, and to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So work doesn't come easy. There's not just delight and joy. It's hard. And the fruits of our labor do not come easy. And sometimes it ends up with very, very little fruit on the other side. And it's difficult. But God calls us, therefore, 
when we think about work and worship, that our job isn't simply the results of work, but we actually are called to redeem work. That as followers of Christ, we are actually people in our culture looking to redeem work. And the reality is, is that the gospel gives us the resources to be a people who redeem work. Whatever work it is that we're involved in, we actually have the opportunity to be people who bring flourishing back into our workplace when we really understand the gospel. One of the books that I read when I was preparing for this morning was a book by Timothy Keller, Every Good Endeavor. And Timothy Keller does great work on this. In fact, their church in New York uh, dedicated a whole ministry to thinking about like vocation and faith and how, does, how is work worship force and how should we engage it. And when he was talking about, you know, how our faith should affect our work, he speaks about four specific ways that our faith should affect our work and should bring redemption, should be part of the redeeming journey in our work. And here's the first thing he says. The first thing he says is this, that our faith should give us a worldview that helps us bring flourishing through our work, that there is a goodness in our work because of our worldview. And in particular, that any type of work can have flourishing in it because of our worldview. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says, Whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, he says, Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Our worldview tells us that whatever we do is actually for God's glory. And that there is eternal significance in even the most mundane work when we do it with a vision to help people see the beauty of God. Now, this is a very different way of looking at life and reality when we think about as followers of Christ that our lives are not primarily about ourselves, are they? They're primarily about the Father. They're primarily about God and about loving others. That's actually primarily what God says to us. And when we live that way again, we actually become more human than when we don't live that way. And we actually are better and, uh, for society and bring a better good to society when we do that. And that's so different from our common worldview that our culture holds today. One of the most primary tenets of a worldview that culture holds today is that I should do whatever helps me feel good and makes me happy. That life is actually primarily about me feeling good about myself, self-actualization, about flourishing personally. And one of the reasons why I think so often then that, that we have a hard time engaging work well, seeing work as worship, because we feel like our work doesn't fulfill us. It doesn't fulfill me. But the reality as followers of Christ is that we actually realize that life isn't first and foremost, foremost about me, is it? It's actually not about me. That life is first and foremost about God and about others. That the number one goal in life actually isn't about being happy. The number one goal in life is about being holy and becoming more like the Father and serving Him and caring for others. And one of the wonderful side effects that comes from being able to pursue holiness and the glory of God is that we experience a sense of fulfillment and a sense of joy that is foundational even in the most difficult and hard moments that we find ourselves in. And when we as followers of Christ begin to understand that reality, then even in very difficult work environments, 
even in work environments where we feel injustice is taking place or it doesn't seem fair, we can still have purpose. We can still have hope. We can still bring flourishing into that space because we know that our service isn't first and foremost to that environment or the owner of that environment. Our service is first and foremost to the God who owns all environments. And that we are called to serve him and love others in even the unjust spaces that we might find ourselves in. Even in the difficult spaces we might find ourselves in. Our world, our world view gives us a vision for flourishing even in these hard spaces that we are in. And we can work well in even these difficult spaces. So first, our worldview gives us an ability to flourish. Second, our faith gives us an inner balance towards work. You know, it's a funny thing about work. Work can play an interesting role in our lives. It can, it can move us up and down emotionally in such significant things because especially in the West, sometimes work and good things we do become ultimate things to us. They become idols. They actually become our identity. Our work isn't just what we do. It can become actually who we are. Isn't that true? And that can be a really dangerous space because when we're successful at our work, then we become arrogant. You know what I mean? And we see ourselves as above others who aren't quite as successful as we are. And then it's funny how work goes. We become successful in one area. Therefore, we think we're successful in all areas because our work is us. And the reality is we're just not that good. <laughs> we're just not that good. Or the other thing that can happen is if we're not successful in our work, then it can leave us broken. And leave us feeling as if we have no value. And we are nobody in this space because what we accomplish defines who we are. But, uh, the, but the gospel tells us something very different than that. The gospel tells us that our identity is not rooted in what we produce or what we do. Our gospel, the gospel tells us that our identity is rooted in our creator and the one who has recreated us. In Ephesians 2.10 it says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Our good works don't own us. We're called to do good works because God owns us, which he prepared in advance for us that we should walk in them. When we embrace the gospel, we can embrace work without work owning us because we know that God owns us. When things go well, we understand that every good thing we have received is a gift from the Lord. We don't brag or boast because we know that whatever we have has been given to us by our creator. And so we're humble even when we do well. And we don't look down on others who maybe don't seem as socially successful as we might be in that space because we know that apart from the grace of God, all of us are on the outside looking in. That's the reality. So we understand that we are in equal standing. And when things don't go well, we are not destroyed because we are not defined by our successes or failures in our work. We are defined by what our creator says about us. And so even when things don't go well and the tears are real, we are still okay and we can continue to show up because our identity is not rooted in our work. Our identity is rooted in the one who calls us to work. Third, our faith brings dignity to our work. When we understand the gospel, we realize that any time our work is an act of bringing glory to God, reflecting his creative work, or is an act of loving or serving others, 
our work has incredible dignity. That when we understand that however manual the labor might be, when we do it as an act of love or care for others, it is equally eternally significant to any other work. Because only God knows where we can give him the most glory. And his calling for all of us is simply to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And when we begin to love our neighbors through our work, we're doing holy work, no matter what that is. You know, it was interesting this summer, I was walking across um, our yard to head towards one of our worship experiences that I was going to be leading with our staff. And as I came across our yard, I noticed Ron and his wife, Miss Irma, were at our sewer pump. And I got to be honest with you, that's a really bad thing when our facilities people are at our sewer pump because that means our sewer pump is not working very well. And so they had pulled that apart. Ron had actually gotten in there and, and they were starting to work to hook to, to pull that pump out of there because they needed to fix things really fast because all the sewage of all the camp was starting to back up. And we were at a point where we realized that if we didn't get that fixed, then no one was going to be able to use showers and no one was going to have access to water. And so Ron did an incredibly loving thing. He got in there and he hooked the chain up to that sewer pump and he got the tractor and he pulled that thing out and he started working. It's amazing what certain people flush down toilets, my friends. I got to tell you, I didn't even know you could flush a towel down a toilet, but actually you can. And when that gets into a pump, it does lots of damage. And uh, I just remember when Ron had got that out and pulled that out and I stopped to try to help a little bit and he put that in there and I just remember thinking to Ron, Ron, you are the most spectacular person I know. I don't know that there is a more valuable individual on this camp than you right now. And what you did is incredibly loving, not simply for kids who need to drink water, but for counselors who need to sleep in cabins with a whole bunch of kids that need to shower. Like that's an incredibly loving thing for you to do, Ron. Incredibly loving thing. When we understand the gospel, we understand that all acts of service towards others are equally significant when it comes to the kingdom. And so we know that even the most minute work that God calls us to do has with it so much dignity and so much value. And as followers of Christ, we can engage our work with dignity and value when we do our work well, whatever it is. Because we know that we are called to love others with our work. So we do the work well, whatever it is, as an act of love and glory to the Father. You know, Timothy Keller answers the question. He says, someone asked me, he goes, what does a Christian pilot do? What does it mean for a pilot to be a Christian and do his work as an act of worship? And he simply says this, that pilot will land the plane. That would be a great act of worship for that pilot to do. And that pilot, she will work to land that plane as comfortably and as smoothly as possible as an act of service to the people who are on that plane. And when we understand that this is actually what God calls us to, that we are agents of his redemptive work in our culture, in whatever space we're in, we realize that all of our work has dignity. And then finally, our faith gives us a moral compass in our work. That as followers of Christ, we understand that we live according to a very different standard of what is right or wrong. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Our standard of integrity and ethics is not based on the industries that we find ourselves in. It's not. It's based upon the God that we serve, the one who has created our industries. That he is the one that calls us to a different way of being, an ethical way of being, an honoring way of being. That we are accountable first and foremost, not to our boss and not to the industry standard, but to our God. That's who we are first and foremost held accountable to. And so we are a people that, that understand that our ethics change how we do work, but it also changes the type of work we do. That we are involved in work that brings flourishing and goodness to others. That brings value and care for the people around us. That creates in a way that reflects the Father. That in whatever space we're in, that's what we engage in. But not only does it change what we do, it changes what we celebrate. Because we also celebrate people who aren't followers of Jesus, but are doing work that reflects the creator and the common good for humanity. And so we celebrate that. And we become a group of people who function very differently than what is normal within our cultural environment because of the gospel and because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We have a strong moral compass. Okay, so our faith should affect and shift our work. And when we as followers of Christ really understand what it means to follow Jesus, we can begin to realize that all of work has dignity, that God is king over all of earth and wants to redeem and restore all of earth. And we get to do that from whatever position or place he has called us to. Then what does that actually mean for us practically then? Let me give us just three quick ideas of what I think that means for us and then we'll, we'll close down. Okay, what does that mean for you young adults who are going to university and you're trying to figure out how to plan for your vocation in your career? Here's what I think it might mean for you. I think it means that you think differently about what kind of vocation you should prepare for. I think there have been times in my life and even when I've worked with my son where when he's talked about vocation, I've thought primarily in terms of economic stability for him. <laughs> I remember when he came to me about three years ago and, and he said to me, hey, dad, I think I want to be a youth pastor. And I remember just kind of looking at him and saying, son, I think you should stay out of that as long as you can. So just, you know, you need to go find something else. And then I remember kind of reflecting back on, um, on the conversation I had with my mom when I told her I was going to be a youth pastor. And, and she came to me and she just said, how are you going to provide for your family? You know, and I remember just thinking, well, I, I, I don't know for sure, but, but I think God's got it. And I think Provision for my family should be one of the reasons that I look at my work, but it shouldn't be the only one. There might be something more here. And I think what I want to say to you as, as young adults who are engaging, you know, in education, I think that you should be cautious about maybe the narrative that you've heard, the narrative that says, hey, you should get really great marks in high school. Why? So you can go to a really great university and do what? Get really great marks at university. Why? So you have an opportunity to get a really great vocation. Why? So you can get paid a whole bunch of money. Why? So you can build a really big house. And I think we should stand against that. Now, I think for some of you, you should get really good marks in high school so you can go to a really great university so you can get a really great paying job so you can give a lot of money away. That would be a very good thing for you to do. And some of you are wired and designed to make lots of money and you should do that and you should give it away to great kingdom work. And that would be another way to think about preparing for your vocation and what you should do with it. But that also is not the only thing. 
perhaps another thing that you should be doing is going, okay, God, how have you designed me uniquely? What are the gifts, skills, and abilities that you have given me that can bring you glory and bring good to others? Okay, what kind of training would best equip me to steward those gifts, skills, and abilities so that I could steward what you've given me well and bring you glory and goodness to others? Okay, I'm going to do my best in high school and in university and to get that job so that I can do your work for your glory, for my good and the good of others, I'm in. And that would be very different if stewardship as opposed to consumerism became the primary driver in why we do our education and look at our vocations. I think that would be good. I think that's one application. I think for some of you who own businesses, you know, and you're leaders in industries, maybe here's another way for you to think about how to see your work as worship. I think about my friend Fred, who owns a number of businesses, and, and I admire what he does. One of the things that Fred does is he supports a lot of ministries. And I'm so thankful for how he does that. He works very hard. He works really wisely so that he can make money and he can give that money away to good kingdom purposes. And I love that. But that's not the only kingdom reason why he should do his job well. Second is because he has an opportunity to share Jesus with his employees. And he thinks that's very important. That whatever environment he is in, that his workers would know that he's a follower of Jesus and his love for Jesus is what drives him in his work. And I think that's beautiful and that's good. And we should like be faithful in our environments of employment to help people see the beauty of Jesus and share Jesus with others. Absolutely. But that's not the only thing he does. The third thing he does is as an owner of a business, he fights to be very ethical with his employees. He's looking to make his best money that he can so that he can compensate his employees very well and give them the most healthy work environment so they can flourish as human beings. And that is beautiful, beautiful kingdom work that he's involved in. But not only that, he is committed to developing his employees as mothers and as fathers and as husbands and as wives and as workers. And so he takes them to conferences and he does seminars with them and he brings people in so that they can become better bosses and better human beings. And I think that's beautiful work that he's doing as he stewards his calling in the work that God's called him to. And then the final thing he does is he makes good food. <laughs> he fights to make the best food he can because that's a great way to serve human beings by giving them good food so they can be restored and renewed and go about the work that God's called them to. And he does it to the very best of his ability, making the best and most ethical environment that he can work in. And I love the work that he and his wife do as business owners. And I think that's a good vision for business owners. And then I think about laborers, those of us who work for others in our environments. What do we do? Well, I think we see our work as an act of giving glory to God first. That whatever we do, we do for his glory. Which means that we do it to the very best of our abilities. And then secondly, we do it in a way that can serve others well around us. Whether it's our fellow employees or whether it's the customers we serve. But because of the gospel, whatever we do, no matter how small other people might see it, we understand how God sees it and we realize there's great dignity in this work that we do. So we show up. We show up every day on time the way that God would have us to. We give our best in that space. 
Before we go home, we ask, is there anything else that I can do to be helpful? And because we understand, even in difficult spaces, that we are serving the king, and even though there might be tears and frustrations, and there's seasons when we have to ask ourselves, should I stay or should I go? While we are there, because of the gospel, we can even bring joy into the most difficult, mundane moments, because we realize that what we do, we do for the king. And that matters. And that is worship. Jesus, we love you. We thank you so much for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for your calling that you have given to us. Father, we thank you that you are the king of all things. Lord, we haven't come even close to answering all the questions that we have when we think about vocation, work, and worship, not even close. But Lord, the gospel, the reality and work of what your son Jesus Christ has done, and the story of redemption gives us so much purpose and meaning in even the most mundane moments when it comes to work. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill our minds with the reality of who you are and what you have called us to. And that Jesus, as we lean back into our environments, may we go forward with purpose, with conviction, even with a type of joy doing the work that you have called us to in the way that you have called us to do it. And may we not simply bring value to our work, but because of your redeeming work, Lord, may work bring value to us as we see it as worship in your holy name. Amen.